Uh, let me uh, say first off, um, so my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. I've had a chance to meet you. Uh, what a joyful morning we've had already. Uh, Chris and Felicity, how many days have you prayed to see this day? Oof. Man, I was tearing up, so I can't even imagine what it was like for you. Thank God for your example. And uh, what a joy it is to consider that a woman that was born into Confucianism and uh, these kinds of things, Buddhism, Jesus can rescue through the book of Kings. You know, what a joy. Uh, and let me also say to you, just congregation, you know, I think about those two testimonies. Thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you with the word week after week. What a joy it is. I get two days a week where I get paid to study the Bible and write sermons. I've got the greatest job in the world. Uh, so I just am thankful to you for that privilege. Uh, but what a joy we've seen already. This morning, we're going to meditate a lot on the gospel, and I'm going to use some quotes from a guy by the name of Milton Vincent. And there's a book in our bookstall downstairs called A Gospel Primer, wherein he meditates on the gospel. So if there's something about this sermon that you say, I need to do more of that, well, then I have two copies. I'm going to leave right here. First come, first serve. These are the last two copies in the bookstall. So uh, the others have taken them. If you don't like the fact that they're all gone, well, you can blame the deacon of bookstall. I can't find him. He's out there somewhere. Oh, he's in the back. All right. Well, good. He's not here. Uh, I'll leave these here. Let me pray for us, and we will... Uh, Dive into the Word. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to gather together to sing your praises. Thank you that we, we get to do that not just as individual people, but as a church, as an assembly. Lord, thank you for Weijin. Thank you for Isabel. God, thank you for Tom and for Felicity and Chris that have preached the gospel to them. And Lord, thank you for this church that has preached the gospel to them. Oh, God, may we see these baptismal water stir even more. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Matthew, chapter 13. I don't know the page on the chair Bible in front of you, but if you don't have 819, 819. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, you'll want to keep that open. It's a short verse. Uh, we'll be doing a lot of meditation on that verse, but we're taking these weeks between Easter and Memorial Day to transition us from the book of Kings to the book of the New Covenant, the New Testament. So for seven months, we considered the kingdom of Israel, which of course was an ethnic, material, earthbound kingdom uh, that under the economy of God has since passed away, though elements of that kingdom have continued on into the new kingdom of heaven. But after Jesus came, fulfilled his mission to live, die, and rise again and ascend for the sins of his people, after that, he then sends the Spirit to dwell within his people. And so now we dwell in a time and an age of the kingdom of heaven, a heavenly kingdom. It's a kingdom that is multi-ethnic, spiritual, a kingdom that will be consummated in a material sense upon the return of Christ. And so as we live in this epoch, as we live in this age, how is it we are to understand ourselves as Christian? How is it we are to understand the nature of this kingdom? And I think sometimes it can be difficult for us to understand how to live in a spiritual kingdom of heaven, which is why I think Jesus so often tried to describe it. The kingdom of heaven is like, and that's what we're doing in this series, trying to understand the nature of this kingdom that we now live in. 
Um, and so a few weeks ago, we thought about the fact that the kingdom of heaven is not of or from this world. It's of heaven. The, we then thought about how the kingdom of heaven is like a small seed that grows into a big tree, eventually having a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that is represented in the kingdom of heaven, wherein the weeds, which is the evil, those apart from Christ, are plucked out and thrown into the fire, and those that are wheat, those that are in Christ, shine like the sun. That's what we've thought about. Today we consider how the kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure. We'll do that from picking up where we left off two weeks ago from Matthew 13, verse 44. And by way of introduction to what this passage will teach us, let me just offer this little thought that has haunted me ever since I've read it. This author says that the longer I live and the closer I come to heaven, the more troubling it is that so many identify as Christians but give so little evidence of being a Christian. It's a troubling thought, isn't it? Jesus describes salvation as a new birth, as being born again. It's drastic, right? You see that illustrated in baptism. And yet so many claim to have experienced that new birth, and yet they go on looking like they had before. Perhaps the scariest verse in all the Bible, of course, is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, where someone claimed to know God, and yet after they die, God says to them, I never knew you at all. And the way that Christians tend to evaluate the veracity of one's claim to be a Christian, the way that we tend to do that is we evaluate a person's doctrinal confession. Do they actually believe in the true gospel, in the God of that gospel? You know, here we would be looking at the doctrinal commitments of a person. Do they believe in the Trinity? Do they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for their sins? Or are they adding to that work by believing that somehow Lord's Supper or baptism saves them? Another way that we evaluate the claim of a person to be in Christ would be to evaluate the fruit of that claim. So in other words, maybe they get the claim right. Maybe they have the right God and the right gospel. But are they living it out? Are they, as James says, are they doers of the word? And here we're evaluating the fruit of that person's life. Is in some ways their life matching what their confession is? Well, friends, we come now to this passage wherein we have a different way of evaluating, a way that is not often thought of, maybe even employed. And that is this. Does the person love God? Do they have an affection for God and His gospel? See, it's, it's one thing to say that you are an adopted member of a family. It's not, you could answer questions and show your address where they live, but it's another thing to evaluate if someone actually loves that family as an affection for the father, the mother, as it were. And so likewise, it's one thing to say that you're a Christian and to pass a doctrinal test, but friends, the devil could do that. It's another to evaluate, to see if one's endeavoring to try to live in light of the doctrinal confessions. But friends, the Pharisees probably could do a bunch of that. But friends, what the devil and the Pharisees could never pass is both the doctrinal, the practical, and the affectional tests. A deep and abiding love for God because of the wealth that is found in Him. Big idea this morning. I think I've heard this word 15 times this morning. The gospel is the treasure of our eternal joy. The gospel is the treasure of yours, of ours, eternal joy. 
Take a look here. After finishing the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds, remember he's speaking to his disciples at this point. Right? We thought about this a couple weeks ago. Right? He's speaking to the crowds. He gives the parable, but then he comes into the inside room and he gives the disciples the interpretation. That's continuing in chapter 13, verse 44. He's speaking to his disciples at this point, not the crowds. And there he says in verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Underline this. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, like a pearl of great value. Now, we've said that when it comes to parables, I've said that they are simple stories meant to illustrate a single point. So people can get in trouble stretching parables to say more than they intend to say. And so we need to stay in the guardrails of Jesus' teaching here. And the meaning here isn't too hard to see. In both of these parables, the kingdom of heaven is compared to something of great wealth. And so having been dazzled by that great wealth, they then go and sell all to gain it. Both of those are indicating that. Therefore, the interpretation is fairly uh, simple on the one hand, namely that the kingdom of heaven is a treasure in a field or a pearl of great price. And so enjoy, go sell it all to get it. But uh, still a couple questions remain, don't they? What exactly is the treasure? We know it's the kingdom of heaven, but what is the kingdom of heaven? What is it that's a treasure about that kingdom of heaven, as it were? I've defined the kingdom of heaven as the rule and reign of Christ. But what exactly about the rule and reign of Christ is such a treasure? We need a little more help, don't we? But secondly, what does it mean to sell all in order to gain that kingdom? Does it mean we literally have to sell stuff or do stuff to gain the kingdom? Well, the quick answer to that, friends, is no, we don't. We're impoverished. We have nothing to offer God. That's the quick and easy answer that we are inherently sinful. You heard them testify to that just a moment ago. We have nothing to offer to God but our sin. He doesn't need our cars, our houses, or whatever the case may be. More on that in a bit. But for now, let's answer that first question. What exactly, this is where we'll spend most of our time. What exactly is the treasure that is such a joy to sell and to gain? What's the treasure? My answer to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The treasure in the field, the pearl of great price, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's the case for two reasons. One, the gospel is why Jesus came. It was his basic message, as is evidenced by Mark's gospel, where Jesus bursts on the scene. And the first sermon he preaches is in Mark 1.15, when Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. Kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The Bible even centers on the teaching of the gospel. Jesus' work is centered on the gospel. But the other way I know that the treasure is the gospel here in the kingdom is because it is by the gospel that the citizens of the kingdom have all of its wealth. It is by the gospel that we have all of its wealth and enjoy its wealth. And so here's what I'm going to do in this sermon. is I'm going to take five jewels in that treasure chest and have us to meditate on them. Five. 
five treasures of the gospel to see, to behold, to be allured and dazzled by that you, Christian, might be reminded of the treasure hidden in the field, the pearl at great price. And maybe if you're not a Christian, you would come to see it maybe for the first time. That's what we're going to do. And I'm going to do that from five particular doctrines of the gospel. Propitiation, redemption, justification, adoption, and glorification. I wonder if you could have done that. I wonder if you could have named all five of those. If you were to say, all right, gospel, could you have named at least five? I wonder if you could. And even now that I've named them, could you define them? And could you apply them? Well, if your answer is, I'm not sure, allow me to help. The more comprehensive, friends, we understand these ideas, the more comprehensible the wealth of the kingdom of heaven will be. And the more we will be compelled to sell all and gain it. I want to say that again. Let me say that again. The more that we understand the treasure of the gospel, the more that we will be willing to sell all and gain it. And the more that we understand that we, what we have and the doctrine of propitiation, redemption, justification, adoption, glorification, just to name a few. I could name 30. I'm giving you five. The more we will see the incomprehensible joy of the king and his kingdom such that we will live more sacrificial lives for the gospel. And so, friends, it is my opinion that much of the powerlessness seen by people who take the name of Christ can be explained by this one fundamental point, namely that the gospel has become dull. Jesus died for my sin. Right. So move on. And other things become more dazzling. They simply aren't convinced of the treasure of the kingdom. It has been said that one generation believes the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, the third generation confuses the gospel, the fourth generation abandons the gospel. And in all of that, the gospel just gets assumed or seen as dull. When in this passage, Jesus is teaching us, it's the treasure. It is in that gospel that we not only have what we need, but all the more what we want down deep. Nowhere else in all of Scripture is anything described as the power of God except in the gospel. Milton Vincent, this is quoting that gospel primer, says, God's power is seen in erupting volcanoes, in the unimaginably hot boil of our massive sun, and in the lightning speed uh, of recently discovered stars seen streaking through the heavens at 1.5 million miles per hour. Yet in Scripture, such wonders are never labeled the power of God. How powerful then must the gospel be that it would merit such a title as the power of God? And how great is the salvation it could accomplish in my life if only, uh, if only I would embrace it by faith and give it central place in my thoughts each day. Here we go. That's what we're going to do. Brothers, sisters, friends, neighbors, I'm here to tell you that 28 years ago, I stumbled upon a treasure. I'm going to open it up. Let you see it a little bit. Behold the gospel, the power of God, the wealth of God to man, the treasure trove of our eternal joy hidden so often in plain sight. First jewel, propitiation. I'm going to call it the pearl of peace with God. Propitiation, the pearl of peace with God. We all instinctively know that when a criminal commits his or her crime, they deserve justice, right? We know that. A penalty for their crime. We know that. If a thief comes in the night to steal your pearl necklace and ruins it by selling it off and losing it forever, we expect them to receive wrath from the government, don't we, in some way? 
Well, friends, we are criminals towards God. Every one of us. Each of us has gone our own way. Each of us has been a law unto ourselves. We have not only not kept God's commands, we haven't even kept our own commands. And we, most of us, could even care less about a lot of God's command. And this, friends, is why we lack so much peace with God. We are all readily aware of our failures. We are even tempted sometimes, some of us are tempted to define ourselves by those failures. And the ways in which we endeavor to get peace with God, knowing those failures, so often is by good deeds. If we do enough of those, we can pay off and get some peace with God. So for some, it may these good deeds may come in the form of religion. Maybe you're here this morning to kind of pay a little bit of that debt off towards God. Others of you may read your Bible, pray, put money in the pot as a way of kind of satisfying your debts with God. An older generation would have said, I'm trying to be a good person. These are ways in which to get peace with God. Others of you may be trying to serve the poor, advocate for some injustice, whatever it is. We all know that we lack peace with God as evidenced by that pesky conscience of ours that always seems to condemn us, doesn't it? Whispering in our ears to do more. And no matter how much good you do, have you noticed, no matter how much good you do or how much intentions you have, it's never enough, is it? And maybe you're realizing the payment is too high and you're frustrated. You can't get that peace no matter how good you try to do. You can't find the pearl of peace with God. You deserve a penalty. And good deeds don't seem to be enough to pay off that penalty. Well, friends, Jesus has supplied his people with the pearl of peace with God by taking God's punishment on the cross for our sins. This is what the Bible calls propitiation. Jesus is our wrath quencher. He has fully and finally satisfied God's wrath against all of our wrongdoing. So when Jesus took the cursings of men, when he took the crown of thorns, it tore into his skull. When the cat of nine tails ripped his flesh. And when the nails were driven into his hands and feet. When he was forsaken by God, our Father. There on the cross, Jesus satisfied God's anger against our sin. As one pastor has said, the price for you to have a favorable glimpse of God, it came in the mutilation of the Messiah. The cross communicates the weight of our sin as well as the weight of God's love to satisfy it for his people. The cross is terrible, friends, because our sin is terrible. And the cross is great because God's love for us is great. Isaiah says, quote, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Christ, that is. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he, Jesus, shall bear their iniquities. So, Christian, because Jesus is your propitiation, propitiation, you have the pearl of peace with God. It's yours. Therefore, your boss's condemnation of your performance, your spouse or your family member's accusations, your social media feed buzz that blitzes you and condemns your conscience for this or that. Indeed, maybe even some sermons or books that have been mishandled to condemn you, if you're trusting in Christ, it's all finished. It's taken care of. God's anger against all of your wrongs was dealt with at the cross. 
Jesus said, it is finished to your guilt. When you fail this week or when you will fail this coming week, this last week or next week, you don't have to find a way to assuage God's wrath against you. It's been dealt with. God has given you the pearl of peace with him and Christ's work on the cross. And so as the world goes on trying to condemn your conscience, as the world is trying and succeeding a lot in so many ways trying to condemn you, Christian, as the evil one reminds you every day about what you did last night or last decade, condemning you and calling you to do more, to gain peace, you must hold up, beloved, the pearl of peace and remind them all, my guilt is and was and will be satisfied with Christ on the cross. It's dealt with. God is no longer angry at me because of the doctrine of propitiation. Peace. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Look, beloved, behold the pearl of propitiation. Look at the pearl of peace with God. You have it. Second, jewel. Let me pull out and hold up. Redemption. The ruby of remission from sin. Redemption, the ruby of remission from sin. Here's a second treasure out of that box that we found, that I found 28 years ago hidden in a field. Some who are in Christ might then wonder, well, now, Nathan, God may have dealt with his anger by punishing his son, but has he forgiven me of those sins? In other words, the Lord sort of kind of punished Jesus or punched him, but does my debt still hang over me? Maybe he's not angry with anymore, but do I still have the debt that I have to pay off? Well, the doctrine of redemption tells us, yes, it's been paid in full. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus' body and blood was that ransom payment. Jesus not only takes the anger from God that your sin deserves, uh, but he also pays the debt your sins accrued and is still, by the way, accruing. (laughs) He has redeemed, finished since he's redeemed you. The debt is paid. You've been forgiven. And because you have been forgiven, you are now free to know and follow Christ, your Redeemer. Beloved, you no longer have to be enslaved to your passions or the God of this world and his many deceitful schemes. You no longer have to be enslaved. The debt has been paid. He's been given you freedom to live in the joy of your salvation. Paul writes in Romans 5, 5 to 6, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He goes on to say in verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. That's what baptism means to symbolize. You've been washed. Now you can go in freedom. You're no longer mastered by sin. Since Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by paying our debt at the cross, we can live in the power of this resurrection. This is the ruby of remission. This is one of the treasures of the kingdom of heaven. The remission, the forgiveness of sins, which introduces a life free from the power of those sins. No longer in debt to God, we can then live in the power of God to choose life and love and righteousness. Milton Vincent again says, quote, 
the forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel liberates me from sin's power because it liberates me first from its guilt and preaching forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation as a nullifier of sin's power in my life. Because of the pearl of peace with God and the ruby of remission of my sins, I am no longer slave to the master of my flesh. I am free to live in all that God is for me in Christ. That's your story, Christian. That's your story. That is true of you. It's one little gem of your salvation. And insofar as you are trusting in your redemption, you can say yes to the good, the right, the true. And you can say no to the false, the wicked, and the bad. All of that is yours in Christ Jesus, your Redeemer. And so therefore, porn or alcohol addiction, slothfulness from constant screen scrolling, sinfulness that lashes out constantly in anger, crippling anxiety that leaves you fearful to even leave the house, all of those are sins that have been paid for. And now in Christ, your Redeemer, you have a treasure, treasure that is able to employ you down the road of righteousness that eventually leads you to the consummated kingdom of heaven where you will find joy forevermore. It's true. Hallelujah indeed. This is one gem in the treasure trove of the gospel. Uh, the pearl of peace with God, the ruby of the remission of sin, and now third, justification. The jewel of a justified status before God. Justification, the jewel of a justified status before God. Jesus not only satisfies God's anger towards our sin, and he not only redeems us from the debt of our sin, freeing us to live a holy life, but thirdly, because of his sacrifice on the cross, he is able to count you a sinner, me a sinner. He's able to count us righteous. This is one of the treasures in the treasure trove of the gospel. That is the pearl of great price. And what has been called the great exchange on the cross, Jesus takes our sin. He's treated as we deserve. And then we, by grace through faith in Christ, are transferred his righteousness to us, to sinners. He takes our sin. We are given his righteous record by grace through faith alone. And that sacrifice, friends, is all sufficient. You don't need to go confess your sins to a priest. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to do all of these other things. You need to trust in the sufficiency of Christ alone to be declared righteous. Anything else is adding to the work of the gospel and therefore is no gospel at all. Though he have failed, our record has been stricken by the judge of the universe to say innocent. You heard Weijin say that. And so, Christian, though the stain of your sins may be readily seen by others, in the eyes of God, he looks upon you, Christian, as clean, as innocent, as righteous, because Jesus has given you his record. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it so clearly. For our sake, he, that's the Father, made him, that's the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus acted as though he was sin, though he knew no sin. Why did he do this? So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. The we there is the Christian that's believing, trusting. And so I may be guilty in the eyes of the state. I may be guilty in the eyes of my father or mother. I may be guilty in the eyes of some of my friends. But in the eyes of the God of the universe, I am counted innocent. It's amazing. 
And it is for this reason, therefore, that Paul can conclude in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. We've been given the record of Christ. Right? There's, there's plenty of condemnation for those that are in Twitter. Right? There's plenty of condemnation for those that are on college campuses that don't toe the popular lines. There's plenty of condemnation at your job where they're expecting you to sacrifice your entire life to work 70, 80 hours a week. There's plenty of condemnation for those of you that are trying to live a holy life and not wetting yourself to the narratives of the world. But in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. None. Zero. Zilch. Only counted innocence in him. And so, beloved, try and imagine what it would be like if you actually believed that down deep. What if you really did believe that? Imagine being so quieted by the pearl of peace with God, the ruby of remission, and the jewel of justification. Imagine being so quieted by that that your heart would be so content, so at peace, that you could have the best sleep you've had in years. This is what we have in the gospel. This is what we have in the kingdom of heaven. An innocence for guilty sinners that is so pure and undefiled that our greatest critics can't touch us. Live is Christ and die is gain. But even that, friends, is not all. Maybe the best gem of all in that treasure trove of the gospel is this fourth one, adoption. Adoption. What I'm calling the sapphire of sonship. The sapphire of sonship. Jesus not only gives us peace with God, remission from sin, and a justified status, he shares his status with us as sons. So now in Christ, we are counted sons of God. We are treated as though we were Christ because his, we are become united with him. So Paul says in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. You've been given his record as son. You've been adopted into his family. Uh, and it says here in John 1, 12 to 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave, he did it. He gave, God the Father gave the right to become children of God. How did that happen? Who were born not of blood, that is not by family ties, not of the will of the flesh, not even by your choice, nor of the will of man, not some other body's choice for you, but of God, he says. God's choice was to make you his and bring you in and give you his name, give you and make you his adopted son or daughter. Friends, I have an earthly family that I love, but it is nothing compared to what I have in God as my father and Jesus as my brother. Just stop and think about that for a second. Have you ever thought about this for more than three or four minutes? You can call God your father. Father. We so take that for granted. This is the gift of adoption. It's so profoundly transformative because it gives us an eternal family. Gives us an eternal home with an eternal story that will never spoil or fade. And so friends, you tell me what somebody makes of adoption in Christ Jesus. I will tell you how they understand the gospel. As a treasure. It's that important. Jay Packer calls adoption the highest privilege that the gospel offers. So just think about this. The, the doctrine of adoption tells us. Listen to this. The doctrine of adoption tells us God wants us. 
Yes, you. God could have forgiven us, declared us righteous, empowered us to live a new and holy life, and he did not have to bring us home. That would have been amazing if he just, his anger was assuaged, he paid off our debt to give it and empowered us to live a new and holy life, declared us righteous. He could have done all of that and sent us away. And that would have been amazing. But he did more. He brought us home to call us sons and daughters. His wrath propitiated our sin, forgiven. He's justified us. And then he brings us home as sons and daughters. That where he is, there we may be with him also. And why? Why would he do this? Why would he bring us in and adopt his own as sons and daughters? Sinners like me and you. Why? So that we could be wrapped up in that Trinitarian love that's been going on forever. That we would enjoy the love of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit forever. And so, friend, did you have a terrible upbringing? Was your father absent or abusive? Well, behold, the treasure of the gospel. Well, you were counted as his child. Many of you have lost loved ones. Some ways you feel like you're an orphan. Well, not in Christ. You have a home. A home where you're fully known and fully loved. Where you're loved and you're liked for who you are. The one who made you who you are. The one that is making you to be all that he's made you to be. Right? We know that every sociological study in the history of the world shows us that kids that grow up with a mom and dad at home, they turn out to thrive so much better than those that don't have that privilege. And friends, that's what we have in the gospel. We have a father that loves us in his home. We have all of that in the gospel, a family where the father loves us enough to give us his son to bring us home. And the son, our brother, who promises to never leave us or forsake us. What do you think that thought could do? This idea of adoption. What do you think that could do for those of you that are feeling lonely? If you just meditated on it for more than five minutes. What could it do for you? Not just check the box and go, yes, that's true. But actually enjoy it. To pull open that treasure and stare at it. Well, if all of this is not enough, there's even more here. I could go on like this all afternoon. I won't, but I could. Fifth treasure here in the box. Let me pull it out. Let you stare, fifthly, at glorification. The gold of eternal glory. Take a look at the gold of eternal glory. Have you ever noticed the universal hunger for a better world? Doesn't matter where you go or what time period it is, everybody on planet Earth in every spirit, uh, uh, in every season, in every span of life, everybody wants a better world. A world with no hunger, no poverty, a world with no evil, no brokenness, no abuses of power, a world where our bodies don't grow old and die, a world, as one author put it years ago, a world of love. Everybody wants that. Everybody does. And that's what the gospel gives us. The gold of eternal glory in Christ. Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the perfect tense. It's finished. In other words, Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. As Paul, or as John says in 1 John 3.2, Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him in his glorified status. Because we shall see him as he is. So in some mysterious way, we will put on glorified bodies with glorified spirits as the earth returns to its former glory. And we, along with all the saints, will worship our glorified Savior together forever. Amazing. Just as the reality of hunger points to the reality of food and the reality of thirst points to the reality of water and just as the reality of love points to the reality of a God of love, so our universal desire for a world of eternal glory is real. And it's coming to us upon Christ's return. This will be the consummated kingdom of heaven. Jesus will have what he told us to pray for. God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Glorification. And we read this final promise here at the end of the book of the Bible in Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Listen to this description of glory. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new glorification. This beloved is what's in front of us. In a world of a world right now, let me apply this for us, in a world so full of doubt and disappointment and death and dismay, a world so full of confusion and division, we as Christians don't have to be among them. In a world so void of hope, we can be people of hope, confident hope, because we are confident that as the grave is empty in Jerusalem and the throne is occupied in heaven, we too, united to Christ, we too will have an eternal glory with him. A material world that will be the consummated kingdom of heaven here on the earth. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to always complain or grow sour with age. Instead, we can be the people of thankfulness and hopefulness. Beloved, this is one jewel inside of the treasure trove of the gospel. I've only begun to uncover its wealth. I've only begun to help you see the value of this pearl. In Christ and his gospel, we have pearls and rubies and jewels and sapphires and gold so valuable that you cannot put a price on them. And the greatest treasure of all, of course, is not just in what Christ has done for us in the gospel. The greatest treasure of all is getting to behold the one that accomplished all of this for us. The greatest treasure of the gospel is that we get to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. We get to behold face to face the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's how Paul describes the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4. He calls the gospel the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. One day, beloved, we will get to see all of that glory as Peter, James, and John did on the top of Mount Mount of Transfiguration. We will get to behold it in the fullness of its splendor. And we won't be foolish enough to say, let's pitch some tents. No, we'll just stay there forever with him. 
One day we will see him face to face. Jesus is the source of all of this treasure because he's the treasure itself. His blessings are the stream, but he's the fountain. The blessings are the beams, but he is the sun. The gospel is from God. The gospel is through God and it leads us to God. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Beloved, like Joshua and Caleb, I've only begun to just peer in that little treasure chest. Just open it up an inch. That's all I've done this morning. I've opened it up an inch. I'm here to tell you that there's more. God is everlasting. We have eternity Think about that, to grow up into the knowledge of this gospel. You get bored with the gospel, you're not going to enjoy heaven because all we're going to do is enjoy it more and more. 10,000 years from now, you come back, we'll have a conversation about how awesome the gospel is. Now, listen, now, you ready for this? Listen how this lands differently now. Now, go sell all. Go sell it all. And it's yours. And come and buy that gospel at no price. Buy it, no price to you. Jesus has already paid for the treasure. You are bankrupt. You found it maybe this morning, hidden in a field. And you've gone to God and said, what do I have to do to get all of that? What do I have to do to get peace with you? What do I got to do to live in freedom, not in slavery to my sin? What do I have to do to be declared innocent? What do I got to do to be adopted into a family? What do I got to do to get glory? And God looks at you, sinner, in the face and says, I've done it all in my son. Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money... Come buy and eat. That's you and me, by the way. I don't care how much money you have. You don't have this money. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Great question here. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Beloved, this is your God. This is your God. Why would you think that by that walking more in a manner worthy of the gospel, why would you think I do it? Why would we think that walking more in a manner worthy of the gospel would steal our joy. Why do we think that? Why would you think, why would I think, that by giving more of yourself to Christ would increasingly bring you a boring and dull life? Why do we think that? It's not true. Been listening to the evil one. The pearl of great price shows us that the more we have of him, the more that we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Have you been praying for that? The more that we do that, the more that we give ourselves to him, the more, that, more of him that we will have. 
And clearly, as evidenced by this multifaceted jewel that we've been bringing out and staring at this morning, the more of him that we have, the more joy we will have. Thus, Jesus telling us that it was in his joy that the man who discovered the treasure sold it all to get it. And so, beloved, sell it all. That is, put your yes on the table, church family. And say, here's my life. Romans 12, I offer my life as a living sacrifice. Not to get the treasure. Jesus has paid for it. Repent, believe upon him. But from that, now offer your life to him as a living sacrifice. Like Hannah that didn't have kids and prayed for one. And God gave him. Uh, the Lord gave Hannah a child. And what does she do with him? Rejoices in the Lord, drops him off at the church building and pieces out. Right? This because she knew her God. that He was worth selling all to gain. And so, beloved, starting this week, resolve this week anew to pursue the passion of his glory. Resolve anew this week to pursue the pearl of propitiation. Resolve anew to meditate on the ruby of remission, to meditate on the jewel of justification, to meditate on the sapphire of sonship, to meditate on the gold of glory, to meditate on the glory of Christ. Beloved, you have only begun to see its infinite worth. You've seen a picture tiny little preview and might i suggest beloved that as you do this work of selling all and giving your life to christ to know him and enjoy him may you please let me endeavor to plead with you to not do that alone jesus did not purchase his bride the church to keep us alone from one another he means for us to treasure christ together And so, therefore, the degree to which you distance yourself, not only from the treasure of God and his gospel, but also gospel people, the degree to which you distance yourself, the degree to which you distance yourself from them is the degree to which you distance yourself from the joy of the gospel. You believe a lie, friend, if you think that Christianity is primarily or only a solitary affair. It's not true. Gather here. Gather in community groups. Gather around dinner tables throughout this city. Gather in coffee shops and sidewalks together in parks and speak of the glory of Christ and the glory of his kingdom. And then tell your neighbor that needs him. Tell them about the glory that you've discovered in the field. They're going to see it as a swamp. But you know there's glory down in there. Tell them about it. And soon enough, beloved, he will return. And we will have the one of whom we learn to long for. And friends, I've shared with you many times, I've had the American dream. I've been there. I've had the house. I've had the car, right? Bought a brand new Mazda Millennia. It was the stupidest thing I ever did in my life, right? I've had the house. I've had the car. I've had the expense accounts. I've had the travel stuff. I've had all of it. I've tasted it. And I've seen. It's a lie. It cannot satisfy you. You'll only want more. More square footage and more traveling will not get you eternal joy. You've got to know that. It can't because it's not designed to. Jesus is designed to. His people are designed to give you that joy. I was talking about this with somebody this week. I don't remember who it was. Some of you. I was on a walk and we were talking about like, we're not leaving, but like why I'd never leave Restoration Church because I love these people. Right? And they're stupid enough to love me back. Well, I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with you. 
There's glory. There's love. There's joy. Pursue Christ and his people. Or else be relegated to a life that chases after smoke. Well, let me end where I began. How do we explain so many people who claim to be Christians and yet give so little evidence of being born again? Maybe that's you. Maybe as even I've walked through this stuff, you're sitting here going, you know, I actually don't know how much I've actually loved God and consider these things. Maybe the gospel has grown dull. Maybe the gospel has grown predictable and impoverished in your mind. And other things of the world are dazzling your sight. And you are one of those people that claim Christ and yet give little evidence for it. Friend, have you considered Christ as your treasure? Have you considered the gospel as glory, as eternal joy? Or has the gospel become tired to you? Well, friend, it's not. That says more about you than it does the gospel. Hopefully you've seen that. If the gospel is a tired message, might I suggest to you, friend, that you actually haven't understood it yet. The gospel is never something we graduate from, but it's only something that we move deeper into. And so whether you're, you're a member of this church or you're a visitor, could I invite you to talk to me or talk to a friend about this gospel and the glory and the joy of this gospel and a life in it? Just go up to him and say, here's your sentence. I'll give you the line. I want to better enjoy the gospel as treasure. Can you help me? And we'll help you. We'll probably disappoint you at some point, but it won't be because of our gospel. We'll help you walk it out. C.S. Lewis says that we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. Isn't that true? If only we would go to Christ, his kingdom, and see him as our eternal joy. We would eternally give ourselves more to him. The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure. So now in your joy, beloved, go. And enjoy it. Explore it this week. And invite others into that work. Let's ask him for help. God, forgive us for the ways in which we are dazzled by so much of the world. But forgive me for how I am. Lord, remind us again for the first time the glory of Christ. It's hidden in plain sight. Remind us again of the pearl of great price. It's worth everything to have. And Lord, we praise you that you've done all of these things and more. We deserve none of it. And we enjoy it only by your grace. Teach us to enjoy it more, please, God. Teach us to enjoy it more. Thank you for this treasure. Thank you that we found it. It's all of you. We give you praise. And even now, we sing to ourselves, but back to you about this treasure. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
then I invite you to stand.